Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. So pardon us while we're fiddling with the uh, camera down here for just a moment, uh, trying to learn to do this a little bit better, and there's a reason why. It's because every week when we're gathered here in the sanctuary at First Naz, there's also people, there are also people who gather with us from all around the world, and they do it via the Periscope app. I'm waving. Can you guys uh, say good morning to the Periscope crowd? One person. Come on, you're friendlier than that. Say good morning to the Periscope crowd who's joining us, please. Yeah, good. Good. And, uh, you know, it's a new day and age. Electronic media make it possible for um, all kinds of things to happen. I just wanted to kind of catch you up with all of that. Um, Each week there's a congregation here of, um, oh, here lately, 230, 240 people. And about that same number that join us each week via electronic media of various kinds. So understand, First Naz, that as we do what we do here, you've got really long arms. They, they just keep stretching out there wider and wider. Just as you work to get your arms around people in this valley and demonstrate God's love to them, so also you're making a way in your giving for the gospel that goes forth in this place every Sunday to also um, reach out there all around the world. It's a good thing. Thanks for helping us do that. Uh, the English language is always in process, evolving and growing. We add new words to the language all the time. Here's a recent one, hangry. You familiar with this word, hangry? Hangry is the word that describes a person who is uh, coming off as rather unpleasant in the way that they treat other people just because they're so hungry. Hungry, angry, hangry. Yeah, um, Jesus might have been a little bit hangry in the passage that we're going to read together today. We're working our way through Luke's version of the Jesus story. Luke said that uh, he knew there was another written version of Jesus' story or two, but he was going to write his version for a very specific reason. It's because he thought that a lot of the believable details had been left out. And so he writes to his friend Theophilus, I'm going to write an orderly account for a certain purpose so that you can be certain of the things that you've come to believe in about Christ. In other words, he was going to help this friend of his and those of us who read it afterwards to move from this, I think so, I I certainly hope so kind of faith into something that feels and is a bit more solid that we can really base our lives on and that we can speak about with confidence when it comes time for us to talk about our faith with other people. So throughout the first few chapters of Luke's book thus far, we've seen Luke giving all kinds of incredible detail about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' uh, conception and birth and the earliest days of his life. Last week, we looked at how he just worked really hard to pin down a detailed calendar of early events And how he kind of unearthed messages from some ancient prophets who had foretold not only Jesus' coming, but more. All in an effort to show people that there really are good reasons to believe that Jesus was far more than just a human being who happened to be a wisdom teacher. So in our passage today, Luke's at it again. He's trying to help us move that faith from I think so to I certainly believe. Let's take a look. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And I'd ask you please to stand with me as a way of showing honor for God's word. I already asked, Lord, that you'd turn on the lights, but I'm going to ask again. Because many times 
I have uh, picked up the Christian scriptures and forced my eyes across the words and come away with nothing. But every time that I have stopped and acknowledged you and said, do you have anything you'd like to say to me while I read? I've consistently heard from your spirit. So do that for us, I pray. Amen. Luke tells the story this way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and the, perhaps the biggest understatement in all of Scripture, at the end of them he was hungry, <laughs> maybe hangry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil took him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Liar. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we dive into this text and uh, handle its implications for our lives, uh, I probably need to address a question that is often asked about this story because of the way that it is written. And the question generally goes something like this. Did the literal devil show up and go face to face with Jesus physically and have these conversations? Did he literally physically take him to a high place where you can see all the kingdoms of the world? Did he literally stand him on top of the temple in Jerusalem? And the answer is, I don't know. I I don't know. The, The text doesn't necessarily require that interpretation, though it just says he went and he took and he said... But let me ask you this. Does, uh, does the physicality of the situation have to be literal in order for the temptation to be real? I'll just tell you the way it's worked in my life. There's never been a guy with horns and a pitchfork that shows up. There's never been anybody, uh, the scriptures talk about um, the devil himself masquerading as an angel of light. I've never seen some beautiful angel show up and say, hey, why don't you try this? But I have faced many temptations that are very, very real. No physical devil necessary. Hand of testimony, please, from the people. Yeah, yeah. So where does it leave us then if we've got this story that talks about Jesus being tempted and a a devil who's doing it? I believe that it leaves us at the place where we just take the story of Jesus' temptation for what it seems to be. The retelling of a story that Jesus himself told to his first followers about a period of rather intense 
testing and temptation in his life, complete with details of how he was tempted and how he managed to overcome the temptation. I want to take a look at those things today and then offer a few observations of my own that I hope will help you the next time you face temptation. Because if your life's anything like mine, uh, it will be before day's end. And you're going to face it a few more times by sunset. So here's the storyline leading into the story that we just read. Jesus has grown up into adulthood. He's about 30 years old at this point. He has a same age cousin, about six months older than him, a guy named John. John had seemingly wigged out for a little while and left civilization, wandered out into the wilderness and lived there on this strange subsistence diet. And when he finally showed up back in town, he was all mountain man like I was last week. He was dressed up in all this, the, the trappings of of some kind of ancient costume sort of thing that people associated with the Old Testament prophets. In fact, John started talking like he was a prophet, and in the way that he was communicating with people, he pulled it off. Everyone, everyone was convinced that this guy was at least a prophet sent by God. They thought he might also be that Messiah, that grand fixer that God had promised as well. He was doing his ministry uh, down toward Jerusalem in the wilderness just outside of there. And Jesus was living way up north, 70-some-odd miles up north. But but the the buzz was making its way up to the northern part of the nation in a day, you know, long before the uh, internet media and so forth that we have where you can find it in an instant. The buzz had, had come with the travelers all the way up into the north country. And Jesus himself was drawn to John's ministry. And so he made the trek down south and out into the wilderness to see what this was all about. John's ministry was basically a call for people to change the direction of their hearts and of their feet because he said, your hearts and your feet are pointed away from God. Every decision that you make seems to be one that would dishonor God. Every step that you take seems to be one that puts some distance between you and God instead of closing the gap. So John said, why don't you just turn around? Why don't you turn around your heart? Why don't you turn around your feet? And once you've done that, I mean, once it's real for you, why don't you do something that demonstrates this new life, this new you to the world around you? And he offered to baptize people so that they could make that real change in their lives known. Interestingly, as the scriptures tell us that Jesus had lived, certainly being tempted, but free from sin, somehow managed to always get it right, Jesus said, I'll accept that baptism because I want to show other people how to do it. I'm going to walk God's direction publicly, and I want to encourage you to do the same. So he received that same baptism, and, and when he did, two different gospels record for us, a couple of miracles happened. The first is that there's some sort of event in the sky that captured everybody's attention, and what people could see is that the Holy Spirit of God descended in bodily form and landed on uh, Jesus the way that a dove would land on a branch, kind of soft, kind of purposely choosing his spot and settling there. And about the time that people went, uh, not a bird, they heard a voice from heaven that just kind of cleared this whole thing up. The voice of God the Father saying, this is my son, and I love him, and I'm pleased with him. It was a great day in church is what I'm saying. 
right? Had this fireball preacher over here in his goofy costume. Had some guy saying, I'll show you how to do it, and enters the waters of Christian baptism. And when he does, you get the announcement, the announcement of all of human history. Hey, guess what? God's on the scene here today. It's a great day to be in church that day. Then Luke says something that I wish were not in the Bible at all. All this great God stuff, right? And then he says this. Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being tempted by the devil himself. As long as I've been your pastor, I have been trying to teach you spiritual principle number one, which is God is not a jerk. God is not a jerk. It's spiritual principle number one. God is not a jerk. If we stop at this point in the text, I may have to quit saying that. Because if all we learn is that Jesus, who said, I'm going to show you how to live for God. I'm going to to do this thing that helps other people find the way. And God says, let's mess with him. God's a jerk. So we better read a little bit farther. Think about this a little bit more. You need to get a hold of this because I think this is absolutely huge, okay? We're looking at the life of Jesus, this moment of temptation. Spiritual enemy of our souls was hoping to destroy Jesus by tempting him and tempting him and tempting him until he caved in and sinned. And in in, in so doing, he would, you know, disqualify Jesus for being the savior of the world. He was uh, hoping to be able to prevent Jesus from carrying out his mission. When we approach temptation, you and I, um, generally speaking, um, one of two things is happening. If we're approaching it on purpose, it's usually because we've already decided to give in. Come on, be honest, right? When we're put in a a situation we don't want to be in, and we can see this this temptation thing coming our way, um, most of us are just really hoping that God is going to step in and solve it for us so that we don't have to be tempted at all. It's interesting to me that in all the, the ways that the Holy Spirit could have led Jesus that day, he could have led him straight into his ministry. He could have led him to perform some other miracle with, you know, you got God the Father and God the Holy Spirit on the scene. Um, Jesus here too. We could put on a pretty good light show. But he instead says, Jesus, you're going to be tempted. And rather than preventing the temptation, I am going to lead you straight into the teeth of it. You're going to have to face this, Jesus. But here's the good news. You don't have to face it alone. Now let's go. The verbiage here in the, in the passage is extremely crucial. Jesus wasn't sent by the Holy Spirit, pushed out there into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil by himself. The passage says he was led there. Come on, let's go together. Led by the Spirit to face something incredibly difficult but inevitable but not on his own. I've read uh, a lot, studied a lot about uh, these temptations that are described in this story from Jesus' life. Every single Bible commentator seems to have a different perspective on how the devil was trying to get at Jesus and what exactly he was trying to get Jesus to do and, and why each of those various temptations was tempting in different ways, attractive to Jesus. If you want to read some of that stuff, you own uh, the internet as much as I do, right? So 
temptation of Jesus in Google, and away you go. You'll read until Jesus returns, if you'd like. But I think that as far as these particular temptations go, all three of them really were about the very same thing. Trying to get Jesus to bail out on the Father's plan for his life, to take a shortcut so that he could get to the glorious end without all the pain, without all the effort, trying to get him to take an illegitimate path to a very legitimate thing. By the way, you are going to be tempted exactly like that a lot of times in your life. To think that you actually know better than God how to get to the good stuff and how to do it more quickly. Being tempted to to take the steering wheel back from God and say, "Um, I can drive faster than you. I can negotiate all of the turns. Forget about the warning lights. Forget about the stop signs. And let's head down this this one-way street and only to find out that it's a dead end. You'll be tempted in much the same way as Jesus was. But I see a handful of different lessons in these temptations than a lot of the commentators do. And I understand that anytime a, a preacher, a teacher dares to say, I see this differently than everybody else in the world, he's on thin ice. Okay? So just understand I know where I'm going, out on the thin ice. Should you choose not to go with me? Um, I get that. Here's what I see in the story of the temptation of Jesus. I see certain things about Jesus' life and his, his uh, ministry when it comes to the salvation of the world. But as I thought about this passage, um, and, I, and I rewrote it this morning, I had a message all about Jesus' temptations ready to go earlier in the week, but I I came here this morning because I realized there wasn't one person who woke up today and said, I just wish I knew more about how Jesus was tempted. But I knew that there'd be a lot of people who'd like to know how to face their next temptation. So that's what I want to talk about. The first thing that, uh, that I think we need to grapple with is this. Temptation isn't a bad thing. Temptation isn't a bad thing. It isn't sin. Temptation and sin are two very different things. I think one of the ways that uh, good people, the people like you, get all tripped up in this whole thing is that when we are tempted to do something that is wrong and we wrestle and we fight with it and then decide to do what is right, instead of going, woohoo, got it right, most of us slink off into a corner saying, I'm a dirtbag because I was even tempted. You got the victory that God himself wanted you to get. You did what Jesus would have done in that situation. And you walk away feeling like a worm because you were able to be tempted at all. I've lived like that a fair amount of my life. Don't kick yourself for being tempted. Being tempted does not mean that you are bad. That and a pulse just mean you're alive. Being able to be tempted means that you are alive. You're a living human being. Jesus himself was tempted. Listen to this. We read that passage. Listen to this one. Uh, uh, The writer to the Hebrews, a, a book much later in the New Testament, penned these words. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. So... Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God because there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. So get this. 
If that's the case, if that's written in the scriptures, it means that God himself knew you were going to be tempted and decided not to change the way that the world works, but to leave the coming temptations in place for you to face them. Therefore, they must not be such a bad thing. God thought, as he administrated this universe, that you and he together could get through them. People often say to me, Pastor, I really struggle with, and then fill in the blank. Tell me about the thing that they always seem to be wrestling with in terms of temptation. And I have a decided and uh, consistent response. Pastor, I really struggle with, uh, I always say, good. And they look at me thinking, you know, they, they were taking this big risk at burying their souls of telling me about the sin they really would like to do. And my answer is always, good. Keep on struggling instead of giving in. Because I know lots of people who have just said, that's how I am. I don't struggle anymore. It's just I'm the guy who always yells at his kids. So when I feel angry, I yell at my kids. I'm the person who always is tempted to cheat. So I just, you know, it's how how I am. It's who I am. I give in. Listen, strugglers are God's favorite kind of people. If you're a person who struggles with temptation, good. Keep on struggling, because as you struggle, you become like Christ, and you court the help of God's Holy Spirit. God isn't disappointed with you when you struggle. Instead, quite the opposite. He's proud of you, and he's working in you. The fact that you are struggling against sin instead of giving into it is proof of God the Holy Spirit in your life. And remember, every time you survive a temptation... Gain a little bit of strength that helps you for when you face the next one. Next thing uh, that I noticed in this whole story of Jesus' temptation is this. Temptation is coming, and it's coming again, and it's coming again, and again, and again. You're a human, and therefore temptable. You have not faced your last temptation. It's one of my great disappointments in life. I thought I should have to face a temptation to steal one time in my life. I decide, no, there, victory over theft, right? I should have to uh, face a temptation to cheat one time, successfully uh, negotiate those turns, and come out as the guy who, uh, who beat the temptation to cheat, and I shouldn't have to ever face that again. Or to exaggerate, or lie, or be angry without cause, or hold grudges. I should just face those things one time, beat them, and there, I'm good. Hmm, not the way that it works. Temptation is coming, and it's coming back. And I can live with that in a random sort of way where I just, I'm going to live my life and see what's coming. And, oh, today I was just, um, you know, I wasn't tempted to yell at my kids, but I was tempted to be lazy and sleep all day. I'd, I'd be great with just the kind of random stuff that happens and drifts with the wind that comes my way as temptation. There's this thing that kind of haunts me as I read this text. It's that temptation is coming, not might be and that God might even lead me into it. This is not a popular message. That's why it's not mentioned much when we read this story. But God may lead you into temptation. What does that mean? Is God setting me up? Is he the jerk that Cliff says he isn't? No. But But he knows that between our soul's tendency to go astray... And the enemy of our souls, who is 
who wants to put distance between God and us, and he comes after us again and again and again. God himself knows that between my nature and that guy, the devil, that we have not faced our last temptation. And instead of allowing us to cower in the presence of even one temptation or to simply give up because we know we're probably going to give in eventually, God wants to lead us into temptation, the next one that comes for you, head on but not alone because he wants to make you stronger. The good news is he's never trying to wean you off of him. He's not trying to get you stronger so that one day you can stand on your own. You think you're standing on your own? Get ready for a chop block right about there that ends it all. But instead, he's trying to build strength in you and me so that we can walk step by step with him, face the temptations, face the tests in life, and somehow manage to get through them victoriously. I've also noticed from reading this story something that's true in my life. Temptation comes at many different times, different sorts of times in my life. But you can especially count on it coming when you feel least able to withstand it. Temptation comes on some good days and it comes on some bad days. But you can bet when you are feeling least able to handle it, you are going to face some kind of temptation. Take a look back at the text that we read. We ended with verse 13. And it's the end of the story. And most of us read the last line of any story as, And they lived happily ever after. This is not a happily ever after ending. Or it's the end, and we just kind of disregard the last line. But this last line was telling us something fundamental and important. It says that the devil left him until an opportune time. What does that mean? It means that Satan himself is looking for a time that temptation might actually work on you. He's looking for a time when you might actually be more willing to give in than you are on the average day. So let's think about some times when you are likely to be weak or weakened toward temptation. How about when you're really, really tired? Is anybody really at their best when they're really, really tired? No. Got a great night's rest. I always seem to snap at the kids then. No, it doesn't work like that. We offer the excuse many times. Well, I was, I was really tired, right? Fatigued. When you're fatigued, you can expect to be tempted in any number of ways. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you, when you're really, really tired at night, your temptation is to go eat something that's really bad for you? I'm just going to put up my hand. Okay. Yeah. When you're fatigued, you are likely to uh, end up being tempted. Do you know that God has a remedy for that? A, a plan that, that he wanted you to, uh, to work in your life all along, all along, so that you're not overcome by fatigue and predisposed towards sin? It's called Sabbath keeping. It's a preventative and a remedy, a full day of rest for you every single week so that you can be strong instead of predisposed towards sin. When else might you be likely to give, more likely to give in to temptation? How about when you've been disappointed by someone? 
when you've got a negative emotion of some kind that is just on full flood stage running through your heart and your mind, you can bet that in times like that you are going to be tempted. So know this, negative emotions of any kind are always a warning light that temptation is coming and coming soon. So you need to prepare yourself. It's in the face of negative emotions that you will decide to be bitter. It's in the, in the face of negative emotions that you will say, I just need a little break. It's in the face of negative emotions that you will say, I just needed a little bit of comfort. So I indulged myself in whatever else. Understand it. When you're sad, temptation's at the door. When you're mad, temptation's at the door. When you're disappointed, it's right in your face. Here it is. We're coming very soon. Get ready when you feel negative emotions. Here's another one. This one bothers me. You, will, you are likely, you, you are more likely to be tempted and temptable when you are serving God wholeheartedly. When you're in, when you're really in. I mean, when, when you have said, he's, he's mine, I'm his, my, my life is going to be lived in devotion to him. I'm going to serve my brains out here. I'm finding this deeply fulfilling life of, of following God and pouring my life out in service to him and others. Understand that when you're deep in like that, the enemy of your souls is going to come and you will be predisposed toward giving in. Look at Jesus' final temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have these two stories from the life of Jesus. Just as he's starting his public ministry, this big 40-day temptation fest. And right at the very end, on the night before he was crucified, he faces temptation again. We don't read anything about temptations in between those two points, though I'm sure they were as constant in Jesus' life as they are in yours and mine. But if you look at the other one, the bookend, the one that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, here we've got Jesus putting the finishing touches on the plan of salvation. Some pretty historic kind of following God. It's up to his eyeballs in doing the work of God. He's under the greatest pressure of his life because of it. He suddenly found himself facing temptation like that. I want to quit, he said. God, there's got to be some other way. Find another way. I'm not going through with this thing. really stumbling and tripping and wondering if he's going to fall. So in the middle of that temptation, he goes back to his guys and says, would you pray for me, please? Oh, yeah, yeah, we will, Jesus. And Jesus prays and is tempted some more and goes back and says, I need somebody to pray. Yeah, we will. Jesus goes back another batch of three temptations, right? Just, I, I, don't, I don't want to do the right thing. Never mind, guys. God and I got it. And at long last, he said, all right, I'll do the right thing. But friends, you got to expect the same thing. Following him is not any kind of guarantee that you are just going to live this perfectly shielded and easy life from here forward. Instead, Dell's bringing his A game against the people 
who are really devoted to him. So understand that you're going to be tempted in all kinds of ways, all kinds of different times in your life. It's going to happen when it's an opportune time because the enemy of our souls is an opportunist. He's looking for every chance, every little way, every little crack in the armor, and he's going to bring it whenever he sees an opportune time. And one of those times is when you're serving him with all of your heart. Just understand that when, you, um, when you're focused on him, you probably have some blind spots over here. Okay, so let's see. He, he created the, the Sabbath as a way of protecting us against the uh, fatigue that predisposes us. What, what did he do to, uh, to help us with the, the business of um, emotions and so forth? Oh, he gave us prayer where I can cry out to God and, and empty the poison of my soul without emptying it on other people and gossiping and ruining the reputations of others. So-and-so hurt me, I can give that to God, right? What, what did he give us, though, to help us whenever we're facing temptation because we're in up to our eyeballs in the business of serving him? He gave us one another in the kingdom of God. Because if I'm walking closely with brothers and sisters... Um, where my peripheral vision is occluded, I've got a brother and a sister who say, hey, Cliff, I see you're struggling today. Let me pray for you. Hey, Cliff, you really seem to be under a little bit of a load. I just wanted you to know that um, I'm here for you. Or, hey, Cliff, how in the world did you miss that? I saw that one from a mile off. How'd you miss that one? Hey, let me, let me speak something instructive to your character, Cliff, so that next time... You don't get blindsided. He gave us the, the fellowship of believers that, as a preventative when it comes down to this predisposition toward temptation that happens when we're serving him. Great, Cliff. Now I know more about temptation, but that's not why I came today. I don't want to know more about temptation. I want to know how to defeat it. I want to know how to face it and win. Then pay attention to these last two points And I think they will help you construct a plan for your next temptation, a plan that can help you to win. First is, remember this. Temptation is not supposed to be a solo act. God is with you. It's it's what we learned at the beginning of the passage. He's leading into temptation, not sending you out there on your own. He's going with you always. You can count on that. But if you don't purposely call that to mind and begin to engage with God when you're in the middle of a temptation, uh, the word for engaging with God is... Praying, yeah, you pray in the middle of temptation. If you don't purposely call to mind that he's here, present with me in the moment, and I don't begin to converse with him, then it feels like I'm alone. And when I'm alone, I'm a sucker, right? Hands of everybody who's a sucker when they're alone, right? I'm a sucker for the, for the lies, the empty lies that the devil can never deliver on when I'm by myself. Here's the good news. I'm never alone, It's just that sometimes I forget, and I act like it. It's why the very first step toward winning in the face of temptation is crying out to God when you know that you're being tempted. Lord, help me here. Steady me here. You know, I have never gone down in flames to to sin while praying. Every single time that I've realized that I've been tempted, I've said, Lord, I need your help right now. In that act, in that moment, I find strength that I didn't have before. Because for the most part, sinning's not as much fun with Jesus. (laughs) 
Sinning's not as much fun with your mom and dad sitting there right next to you, right? How many people have said, oh, um, hey, you got to watch this movie. Sure, come over to the house. So they, they say, and you're, you're showing them your favorite movie, and then you go, oh, I forgot that was in there. Just me, apparently, no, right? Everybody, you know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, this thing, you'd say, not Todd, Todd ever. Um, you've watched this movie. It's a great movie, and you invite somebody else to do that with you, and all of a sudden, you're made miserable by the thing that you thought was great when you were on your own, and sin is a little bit like that. It's a little bit like that. And so if I think for a second that I am alone when I'm facing temptation, I might think, let's give in. It's kind of fun. And it never seems like that much fun when God himself is present with me. We become functional atheists for a moment, and we are people who run the direction of sin. When we actually begin to believe that God is present with us in every moment in all things, it begins to build a defense against temptation and sin. Remember, God's with you, but if you don't purposely call that to mind and engage with him when you're being tempted, then you're going to experience it like you really are alone. So confess your temptation to him. How do I talk to God about temptation? Confess your temptation. Confession isn't just for sin. It's for temptation too. Tell God what you're being tempted to do and ask for his help. While we're on the subject of confessing, it's also a good thing to welcome other people, other strugglers into your struggle, into your life at a level where you can confess not just sin, but also temptations and ask for their help. If we were to trace uh, our family line in the Christian faith back to Jesus, it would take us back through the Anglican Church and through the uh, Protestant Reformation and, and back into the Catholic Church from there. But along the way, when you got to Great Britain, you would run across this guy named John Wesley who really helped shape the way that we understand our faith. Whenever you attend a connection group at First Naz, you're being a Wesleyan. Because Wesley was the guy who said, great big congregations, that's a great thing. But you can also remain anonymous enough that you are alone in your temptation and sin. So he organized their congregations into, he called them different things at times, bands or cells. And he said, the first you're going to meet every week, and the first thing that you're going to do is go around the circle and everybody confess their sins to one another. Just like you guys do at all of your connection groups. And if you somehow got through it and uh, hadn't sinned that week, question number two was, how were you tempted? Now, you think that first question made people squirm? How about all the things that you decided not to do but really wanted to? And they confessed those things to one another. Why? Because in coming out of hiding, presenting the real me, I can be loved authentically by my brothers and sisters. And when they love me like that, they will pray for me. And when they know how I'm tempted, they will know how to intercede for me. I have a handful of folks in my life who have let me come that close. And so when they're they're struggling with their thing, whatever it is, they just text me 411, and I know exactly how to pray for them. 411, the middle of the night, 411, in the morning, whenever it comes, I just pray, and I know that God himself is going to go and make himself very present 
with someone who's struggling. They're going to get the victory. Look on the church website. You can find my uh, telephone number. Or maybe this. Find a friend that you want to go there with. Right? Maybe your connection group would be a good place to do that. I had this friend years ago. Uh, he wasn't a friend yet. He was just a guy. <clears throat> I was uh, renovating the house that Laura and I had just bought. I was there by myself, and uh, unannounced, no knock, bam, just blows through the front door. And I called him by name, said, how you doing? He said, fine. Cut the chit-chat. Okay, wondered what I had done wrong. He said, I've been a, uh, I've been a cocaine and marijuana addict for 25 years, and I'm tired of quitting, and I'm tired of hiding. And so I just needed to come tell you, and uh, I need God to do something. So we prayed, and uh, the, it was a Saturday evening, and the next day at the church, he came right at the end of the service, he came right down to the altar, and he knelt, and he confessed what he'd been struggling with and hiding for 25 years to a group of people, uh, a couple of other men who said, we'll walk it with you. Here's our numbers, call us night or day. I gave him my number. A few months later, I get this phone call, and uh, honestly couldn't afford the time, Right? It was just one of those moments, but I had that sense, you need to take this call. So I took the call, and I called him by name and said, what's going on? He said, look, I'm either coming to your house or I'm going to my drug dealer's house. You choose. Well, come to my house. So he came to my house, and he slept on my couch instead of getting wasted that night. A few more of those, and the man suddenly was walking with God. Would you let your friend sleep on your couch to overcome temptation? Of course you would. I'm no better than the next guy. Guess what? If we don't know each other's temptations, we'll never be able to help each other except with prayers for forgiveness. How many want their relationship with Jesus to be nothing but a long apology? Nobody. How many people want this this relationship with him to change me deeply so that I can be like him and enjoy a close relationship with him? Yeah, that's what we're all looking for. It's brothers and sisters in the faith that help us get there. You're never alone when you're facing temptation. If you feel like it, you have believed one of the enemy's very best lies. You don't have to face temptation alone. God may lead you straight into the teeth of it so that you can grow so that you can beat it and grow stronger, but you'll never face it alone, and you shouldn't even have to face it without another human being if you'll get honest with your brothers and sisters. When you're being tempted, it is always you and God together, but you and God and one or two other people, I'll put my money on you every time. Second thing, second step that I said uh, I think can help you win is this. You need to understand that temptation is a fight for your life. It is literally a fight for your spiritual life. So don't play with it, and don't go into the fight unarmed. You know, there's, there's a reason that we don't let kids play with certain deadly things that adults play with. It's because they don't know how to operate them, and they will go bang, and kid goes bye-bye, right? Temptation is a fight for your life. Don't play with it, because you don't know how to handle it. 
You know how to do one thing with temptation. Give in. Don't play with it and don't go into it unarmed. So um, on that subject, just let me say this. Don't go looking for trouble or temptation or you'll find it every single time. Here's one of the biggest trip-ups for all of us is that we think, I don't want to sin, but oh, I really like to be tempted. I mean, it just feels there's a, a rush in the, in the spirit, in your heart, and maybe in your flesh, that happens when you're facing temptation. Nothing's tempting that you don't enjoy at some level, okay? If it's, if it's all and only pain to you, you're not tempted to go back to it. It's the things that you enjoy, and not all things that you enjoy are, are sinful, but, but it's, it's the, the very nature of temptation is that we enjoy it. And if we go looking for it to flirt with it, most of the time we've already made the decision to go all the way there. So don't go looking for trouble. Don't go looking for temptation or you will find it. But in this, this business of, of um, being not, not going into temptation unarmed, I would say this. Notice how Jesus handled each one of these temptations. He knew Scripture well enough that he knew the difference between right and wrong. So that whenever the enemy said, hey, how about na-na-na, Jesus could say, ah, well, um, it is written, blah, blah, blah. Remember this, there are no brownie points with God. There's no way to impress him. There's no way to, to make him think that you're better than you are. So reading the Bible is not something that your pastor ever tells you so that you can get in good with God. These are the words of life. They, are, they set guardrails on both sides of a very narrow path. And they keep you from falling to your death on either side. So when your grandma or your Sunday school teacher or some preacher says, read the Bible, it's not because you're supposed to be able to check that off the list if you're a good Christian. It's because it will save your neck. You'll know the difference between right and wrong between something that's wise and something that is foolish. Jesus knew scripture well enough that he knew what was right and wrong and knew what to do in each situation. Reading the Bible doesn't make you a good Christian, but it can make you a strong one. Hear me? But perhaps the more crucial difference in, in Luke's temptation story is found in the first verse. It says, then Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's a lot of New Testament language about being filled with God's Holy Spirit. What does all this stuff mean? It means that instead of having an exterior relationship with God, you know what an exterior relationship with God is called? Religion. I've got this formal measured, approached distance between God and me, close enough that um, I'm not some long-range enemy, but far enough away that he can't quite get a hold of me. That's religion, mere religion. Religion didn't get Jesus through the temptation because there was no religion to do in the desert. What was it? that got him through it. It was God's Holy Spirit on him, in him. It means that 
being filled with the Holy Spirit, as the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures talk about it, means moving past this mere religion, this external kind of relationship, to an interior kind of relationship with him. I, I, I know God because I've invited him to come past arm's length, to come close, close enough that I can't always tell where he ends and where I begin. In me. Yes, Jesus was well-armed with the truth. It helped him. But I think this, the, the, the real deciding factor here, if I, had to, if I had to bet on one of the two, I'd bet that quoting Bible verses might fail you sometimes. But that the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit is the fix, you guys. It's the fix in the face of temptation. You have not seen the last of the tempter. He is coming back for you probably today. Maybe you're fighting temptation right now while you're sitting in the sanctuary. Maybe you know that as soon as you walk out that door back there, you're going to have to face one. Maybe you've lulled yourself into thinking, man, I'm just, I'm really spiritually strong right now. Pastor, I'm good. Nothing seems to to tempt me these days. Oh, get ready. Get ready. Because there's one coming. The question is, how can we be ready for it, and how can we get through it? Don't get blindsided. Know what tempts you so that you'll be ready when it comes. When in the same way that Jesus won, being filled with the Spirit and armed with the truth, familiar enough with Scripture that you'll know what's right and wrong instead of having to guess or sort it out in the middle of temptation. Don't make extra temptations for yourself. Because we know that we are assured of victory when we're walking where God leads us, even if he leads us into temptation. We're assured of victory when we're walking where God leads us, but we don't stand half a chance when we purposely leave his side to pursue temptation. Who's that person that always makes you feel a little flirtatious? Don't go there. Who's the person that says, why don't you have just one? When you know that you can't have just one. Don't go there. Who's the person that's always a gossip and seems to turn you into one? Just don't go looking for it. Who's the person that's always criticizing and complaining, and the next thing you know, you're as sour as they are? But they're your friend, so it might be time to have one less friend. Don't go looking for temptation. When you intentionally leave Jesus' side, good luck out there. But when you walk, when you invite his Holy Spirit to walk with you, You are going to be victorious in the face of temptation, regardless of its kind and regardless of your mental, emotional state coming into it. I'm going to go back to um, this really became a different sermon than I thought it would, and I'm almost more than out of time. Um, I'm just going to go back for a moment and talk one more time about this great grace and help that God has given us that every American disregards Sabbath. The gift of God is rest for you. I know a bunch of you are going to say, I get my rest from playing really hard. Okay, that's not rest. It's play. It's two different things. 
And the scriptures were really clear about the rest part of resting. It is the gift of God for us that helps us not fall into the, a, a number of kinds of temptation. So I just want to encourage you, on this day that we call the Lord's Day, let's not reduce it to the Lord's hour and a half. You might find some help in it. Worship team's going to come. Communion teams are going to come. We have set before us here uh, the Lord's Supper. The ritual that they taught us when I was in seminary said the feast is for his disciples. It means this, that it's, it's, it's a tiny little feast, right? That's about the size of uh, chiclets gum. And this is enough to make you thirsty, right? If we're just looking at the physicality of it. But this feast is for his disciples, is what the liturgy said. It means this, let, let everybody who's decided, you know what, I'm in. I'm, forget this business of religion. I want an interior kind of relationship with God so that in the face of temptation or even on my strongest days, I can have a real connection with the God who made me. I'm either battling temptation or I'm preparing for the next one because I'm going to be in close connection with the God who made me. Understand this. Every person today who wants to have close relationship with God is welcome to two things. One, relationship with God, and two, holy communion. We will ask that if you do not share our faith, we're not going to judge you, but we would just ask that you not profane these things by just eating them and not meaning it. But I also believe that this simple act of, of receiving these elements that represent for us the body of Christ and his shed blood for us, they, they, they represent everything that he gave us, everything that he was wanting to give to us, and that includes his Holy Spirit within us. In, in eating and drinking today, you confess your faith in Christ, but you can also be asking for his Holy Spirit. Because this is an interior kind of thing. It's coming from out here into your mouth and down into your belly. If you'd like, you can invite his Holy Spirit to come in.